Hi there. My name is Subukalpati and welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast that dives into the many facets of organizational culture. I am a learning leadership and organizational development professional. The world of work as we know it is fundamentally transforming. In this podcast, I invite fascinating people from diverse fields to share their unique perspectives on the new world of work. My guest today is Raj Raghunathan, a professor of marketing at the McCombs School of Business, the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Raj offers a course on Coursera titled A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment, which draws content from a variety of fields, including psychology, neuroscience, and behavioral decision theory. He's also written a book on the subject, cheekily titled, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Professor Raj has given a number of TED Talks, including one hosted by Shah Rukh Khan for TED Talks India. Professor Raj, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Subhu. I'm very, very happy to be on the podcast and uh, not just be on it, but be the inaugural um, person on it. Um, I feel really honored. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so what I'm going to do, Professor, is, is uh, you know, you have a very interesting backstory in terms of how you started researching um, this entire aspect of happiness. And while you've written about it extensively in your book and also in your um, uh, in the in the course on Coursera, it will be great to maybe begin there. Um, what was it that led you to uh, do, you know, embark upon this journey of researching happiness? Was there a tipping points of sorts? And how how has this impacted your your body of work? Yeah, so uh, I've always been very interested in happiness, uh, even as a young kid, uh, I was very interested in it. And later on, when I became a teenager, etc, I would read up a lot of uh, Osho Rajneesh uh, books. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with some of them. Uh, also made some forays into Jiddu Krishnamurti, although I beat a hasty retreat because that was like pretty dense for me at that point. Um, but uh, really, the major tipping point uh, came uh, with regard to kind of researching and writing the book and uh, putting up that online course on happiness uh, came around 2006 or 2007, actually both those years, because I took a bunch of MBA students with me from the United States, uh, where I teach to India as part of a course called Global Connections. And in the course, uh, students are exposed to another culture, they go to different parts of the world. And being from India, I, I led the course to India. And uh, by that time, it had been about 15 years since I'd graduated from my own MBA school in 1992 um, to 2006, 2007. And those days, Subhu, you know, you, you know this, that we did not have social media, right? We did not have Facebook, we did not have WhatsApp. And so I'd literally lost touch with all of these people. I hadn't communicated with a lot of my batchmates for 15 years. And so I was meeting up with them, reviving some of those contacts because, you know, having graduated from IIM Calcutta, which is a very good school, as you know, you know, a lot of my peers had done well for themselves and risen up the ranks. And um, so they were the appropriate audience for me to contact uh, for my students from the Makum School of Business to uh, hear, listen to, um, you know, interact with and so on. And so a couple of things that I noticed, one of them is that uh, the people who had done really that well for themselves uh, academically weren't the ones that were uh, doing um, well professionally necessarily, right? I mean, not that there was a negative correlation, but, you know, you would expect the topper types to also be the ones that are earning the big bucks and have uh, risen up the corporate ladder, but that wasn't the case. And that was interesting. Um, but the second thing really, really caught my eye, which was that if anything, there was an even lower correlation between uh, what you might call... Um, career success and what you may call life success, 
right? So how happy these people were. Uh, and so the people are risen up the ranks and making the big bucks and, you know, doing all those powerful um, colleagues of mine, and not just colleagues of mine, but other people uh, that they knew, they knew, um, weren't necessarily the ones that were the happiest. And I thought to myself that, you know, what is my primary duty as a educator? Uh, is it to give my students skills and tool sets to uh, do well in the marketplace, um, earn a lot of money, become powerful, et cetera, et cetera, achieve status? Or is it more to give them these skills and tool sets that ultimately help them to lead meaningful, uh, fulfilling, happy lives and by extension, also make others around them, their family, their friends, and you know their coworkers and the people who report to them, et cetera, um, happier and more fulfilled, uh, et cetera. And so, to me, the answer answer was very clear that you know ultimately, if you do not lead a happy, fulfilling, meaningful life, then all these successes that you achieve seem somewhat hollow to me. Um, they're not delivering on the end goal, so to speak. So uh, I turned around to my students. Uh, I remember this as if it happened yesterday in Poai Beach in 2007. And I asked them, we were dancing in order bonfire. Uh, uh, and I asked, them, this is the last day of the trip. We were going to you know, get head back to the US the next day. And I asked them if uh, they'd be interested in taking a class on what it takes to lead a happy and fulfilling life and why it is that sometimes money, power, fame, et cetera, status may not lead to happiness. And to a single person, all of them said, give me a resounding yes. Okay, now all of them were a couple of beers down. And so I wasn't clear. I wasn't sure if they were um, serious about it. But I took that as a uh, you know positive, encouraging sign. And I came back and I put the, put the course together. Uh, it took me a couple of years to start teaching it. In 2009 is when I started. And then soon I discovered that there was a deep hunger for the topic, um, especially in the business school, I would say, because you know there people are well set on their paths to achieve conventional success, but may not have a very good idea of what it takes to um, lead a happy life. And so uh, there's a deep hunger for the topic. And as you know, now we have fast forwarded, what, 15 years, 13 years, and I continue to teach it. I have a book out, I have two courses, not two courses, two online courses out, um, a TED talk, a couple of TEDx talks, and so on and so forth. And so there's a, and, and obviously all the other people working in the area of happiness, you know, if anything, they've been even more successful, I would say a lot of them. And so there's a deep hunger for the topic. And that's kind of in short, although it wasn't so short, I suppose, my response. <laughs> no, but that was fascinating yeah. to hear. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for taking us down memory lane, Professor. That was that was wonderful to hear. Um, so uh, like you said, you've, you've written a book, you have, uh, you know, uh, done the online course, two courses now, given TED Talks. I remember the one with Shah Rukh Khan very vividly. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I saw that, uh, you know, with a lot of intensity myself. Um, and not to mention, you know, probably Coursera's most, one of the most popular courses that, that's been taken by uh, so many students online. So maybe let's, I think a good place for us to start is, um, what do you think is happiness? In, in your mind, how do you define um, happiness? Uh, one is, of course, the academic perspective. But if I were to ask you a straight question, uh, how yeah. would you define it? Yeah. Yeah, for me, uh, happiness is, at least in the moment, uh, it is feeling a sense of joy, a lightheartedness, uh, this uh, feeling that even if I'm doing serious things, right, which can affect the consequences of, say, my students or my own family, etc., uh, I do not take myself too seriously, right? So this idea that it's not personal um, and that there's, like, you know, not too much of 
an ego involved in the process by which I lead my life. You know, that sense of lightheartedness that comes from um, being in that headspace. Uh, for me, that's happiness. Now, you know, as I operate in that headspace or from that headspace, I also want to be careful to not be uncompassionate to other people, right? I mean, sometimes if you don't take yourself too seriously, you might like, you know, joke around and not uh, treat another person's perspective, which might be more serious um, with the gravitas that's required for them to feel good, right? So I don't want to be not compassionate um, as I go about my life. And I also don't want to be not rational. Uh, I want to take decisions that are well thought through. So it's a balance of those things. And so it can seem a pretty complicated place to be, but if you put in place a bunch of habits that uh, you inculcate over time, um, which involve, you know, uh, thinking through things, uh, reading books, uh, you know, researching the topic of happiness so that the rationality side of it is taken care of, and you also practice a bunch of habits that make you compassionate by nature, you know, so you tend to be kind or considerate or um, you also take into account other people's utility functions as you go about making your decisions um, by nature, and that becomes part of the second nature to you, then uh, you don't, it, it is no longer that complicated. It's not a cognitively heavy state, so to speak. Okay, if that makes sense. So that's kind of my <laughs> definition of happiness. And you alluded to this idea that you're not looking at a theoretical, technical definition, which we can get into if you want, but that's my definition. Oh, that's great. Uh, and I love the just to pick on, uh, you know, one point that you made, which is that it's it's about developing a routine and making it a part of your life, uh, almost as a habit. And I remember years ago, uh, when you did a workshop that I was present in, you you uh, spoke about the diary that you maintain where every morning, in fact, yeah. I have, mm -hmm. I have mine open with me right now. Uh, right wow. here. <laughs> so I've been practicing that very religiously every night before I go to sleep. Three things that you that you felt grateful for for the day. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very powerful practice. Um, right. So thanks for that. I think that's an example that you had uh, shared with us many years ago. And I wanted to bring that up. Um, so um, uh, shifting just a little bit, Professor, which is, you know, uh, from an individual perspective to an organizational lens, uh, right? Because uh, this podcast is also structured in the context of organizations. So uh, for an organization that, you know, works in a competitive marketplace, uh, how would you define happiness as a construct that employees and, you know, employers leadership should be um, should be thinking of? Mm. So from the organizational perspective, I think that it's useful to kind of lean on um, some of the more theoretical, um, uh, well-established, research-wise well-established scales of happiness in order to measure organizational happiness. And as you probably know, people talk about, you know, your moment-to-moment -moment experience. What is your affective state, as they put it? Uh, like, uh, you know, are you feeling good right now? Uh, are you feeling bad right now? Do you have a headache, um, et cetera? But also what might be called reflective happiness, which is as you step back from your life, your day-to-day -day life, and you look at it as a big picture, um, then how are you feeling? Uh, how are things going overall in terms of your career prospects, in terms of your relationships, in terms of your bank balance, in terms of your overall physical health, right? Because those two could be like in come up with scenarios when, in which they're not highly correlated, right? I mean, right now I might not be feeling that good because I haven't slept well or I have a headache or there's a minor problem. Um, but, you know, when I take the big picture, um, then, you know, I might conclude that life is going well, right? So you need to kind of like look at both. And in particular, the, the latter, the more reflective happiness uh, piece. Um, and as an organization, you want to enhance both, ideally. Um, but if there has to be a compromise or a trade-off, then uh, you want to definitely enhance the reflective happiness piece. And so how do you measure it? 
you can measure it by relatively simple scale items like you know all things considered my life is very good or i'm highly satisfied with my job here right and things like that or you know when you want to measure experience happiness you can have items like uh, overall as i think back uh, on the last week um, i felt pretty pleasant uh, when i've come to work and i've enjoyed uh, my interactions with people at work and so on and so uh, you know it's it's kind of at one level uh, even though uh, you might be tempted into wanting to make this uh, rigorous and therefore you know think put in a lot of thought into it and you know um, uh, tweak things around i think that you you can pretty much go with almost any item i feel like scale item in order to measure happiness that it seems instinctively intuitively tap into um, the subjective you know state that we call uh, happiness or you know positive mind state and i don't think that you would go too wrong um so got it thanks for that mm-hmm. i i like the differentiation between the affective and the reflective state and to kind of treat them separately and and focus more on the reflective state so that uh, you you move forward uh, basis what what it is that you've been feeling all along thank you for that um so uh, an associated question i think is that you've been you know researching happiness uh, and well-being i think for many many years now like you said 2006 7 is when you really started off and then it's been uh, multiple decades so how um, what's been your biggest insight or maybe a string of insights if i may um, right it, this could be something that you said oh wow this is if i had known this maybe 10 years ago things would have been very different uh, right mm-hmm. so have there been those uh, you know moments where you really took a pause and and it kind of hit you um, right because you were you've been uh, on this in the space for for so long now yeah so that's a great question and i would say there's definitely been some learnings and some insights and for the most part they've been good insights so one thing that is um uh, a big kind of learning for me or an insight that occurred pretty early on is that uh, happiness doesn't just feel good it's also functional uh, to be happy that is that it confers upon you certain advantages if you're a happy person okay um so the reason why this was a very important learning for me is because when i started the course right i i i told you the origins of the course um the objective was very much happiness for happiness sake let's talk about this thing that's important for us it's an end goal and if you achieve success but it doesn't lead to happiness then that seems like a hollow uh, success right so let's talk about this important end goal that we have everybody seems to have it and so we should talk about it but later on um when i read up on the research and uh i came across a bunch of findings that consistently showed that happier people tend to be more productive right happier people tend to be more collegial happier people tend to be healthier happier people tend to make more objective decisions they tend to have higher levels of creativity by and large um these sort of findings uh it suggested to me that happiness is a particularly important topic perhaps to be examined and explored in the business context right whereas earlier if it was just an end goal right that uh, everybody seeks and therefore you know we should talk about it um you couldn't make as big a business case for it you know it doesn't really seem to affect the bottom line it's just the end goal and therefore it's important to talk about but uh, if it actually affects the productivity of the employees then there is a case to be made for the roi of happiness right so to speak in a business context and that was a very very important uh, learning point for me um the second thing which is not uh, <laughs> i suppose at one level you could look at it and say it's not necessarily such a positive thing but it's i think a very important learning and it makes complete sense when you kind of like think back on it is that um many people expect happiness somehow to kind of fall into their lap you know they are completely aware that if they 
are aiming to achieve a lofty goal, like I want to be the CEO of a company or, you know, get a promotion or I want to get a good grade as a student in a class, etc. Or I want to be a good athlete that you have to be disciplined. You have to work hard. You have to kind of not just focus on the thing, but also on the peripheral things that mm, enable you to achieve those successes, right? Like get good sleep or, you know, eat well and so on and so forth. But somehow with happiness, uh, people tend to kind of think that, well, you know, it just needs to land into my lap somehow. You know, I read this one book and then there's a light that goes off in my head and then I'm happy forever from now on, right? It's, it turns out it doesn't work that way, right? Um, that you have to, if anything, um, put in even more uh, set of practices uh, in place and habits in place in order to regularly feel the sense of upliftment or, you know, what one might call non-energetic joy. That even without putting any extra effort, you start to feel joyful on a daily basis. You know, in order to achieve that state, you do need to be disciplined. You need to need to be diligent. Um, you need to be, you know, pretty smart about thinking through what it is that works for you, what doesn't, and so on. And so uh, that's the other kind of big learning that's come about that. Uh, in in a, in a in a nutshell, if I were to put it, I would I would say this that you know there is no one thing that you can do that is going to immediately elevate your happiness levels to the you know to a significantly higher level immediately. Okay, but there's a bunch of things you can do that each of them have a very strong chance of increasing your happiness a little bit, and if you put in place uh, a, a sufficiently large number of these things then um, there's no doubt that you're, in my opinion, there's no doubt that your happiness is going to increase, but you're going to have to do that, right? So that's uh, that's another big learning. Interesting. Uh, to your first point, I think uh, what, what struck me was that we've, we've probably been thinking about causality the wrong way, which is that once you become successful, once you put in the hard work, you will become happy. But what you're saying is just the opposite, is that prioritize happiness first, and that will make you productive. Well-being is important. If you do that well through these routines, etc., that you're talking about, it'll, it'll help you in the right direction. Did I kind of catch that uh, right? Yeah, I I think that there is an element of that for sure, and uh, I you know obviously grew up in India as you know, and uh, this is probably really prevalent around the world, but it's certainly definitely very prevalent in India, which is that our parents, our mentors, our you know well wishers often used to tell us when we were growing up that look work hard, get the good grades, get into the IITs, get into the whatever you know, so and then you can relax, right? So that's very much this idea that you know uh, success comes first. And that will lead to happiness. And so that is inculcated in us and drilled into us from a very, very early age. Uh, but in fact, what the findings show is that there is more evidence for the reverse direction of causality, as you put it, uh, that happiness is more likely to lead to conventional success uh, than is uh, the other way around. And so that's a very, very valid point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, just thinking deeper on that point also is that especially with COVID and, you know, today we talk about burnout so much, it's all over the press about well-being and so on. Maybe precisely because of that reason that we haven't been prioritizing things like happiness and well-being is, mm -hmm. is probably where we've landed up where we are. And now we are taking drastic steps to uh, you know, COVID, of course, was a was kind of a, a wake up call for everybody. Um, but that also probably to your point, uh, that made it clear that this is something that you need to kind of prioritize. Otherwise, it's not going to take care of itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff that I've done um, that happened because of COVID. And it's at one level, kind of a sad thing that, you know, there's more stress and more confusion and lack of uh, clarity on, you know, how to deal with some of these stressors. But I think that it just accelerated the process by 
the accelerated the uh, you know uh, the set of events that led to the conclusion that this is an important thing to prioritize yeah absolutely great so uh, i'd love to go a little deeper uh, in the concepts that that you have uh, you know spoken about in the book and also in your course um uh, and i like the way that you've structured them is that the seven deadly sins of happiness uh, and then you know you have those seven habits which which kind of sit side by side what you should not be doing vis-a-vis what you should be doing instead instead um so if i were to ask you to just quickly run us through what those seven deadly sins are um right maybe that's a good starting point for us to get into the uh, the cultural context if, if that's okay yeah absolutely so let me start with the second deadly sin and then we can circle back to the very first one at the end so the uh, first one is uh, chasing superiority um so this uh, idea of um comparing yourself to other people wanting to be the best uh, quote unquote best on any dimension that you think is relevant be it beauty or uh, richness or uh, sorry wealth or power or um uh, skill sets and so on and so forth right uh, and the corresponding habit is uh, pursuing flow uh, that is that not really worried worrying about how well or poorly you're doing relative to other people but really uh, getting into these so called flow states where you lose track of time and you're intrinsically motivated by the activity itself rather than uh, wanting to be uh, better than other people um the that's the second and the third is um desperation for love uh, so wanting to be the center of attention wanting other people to take care of you nurture you uh, etc uh and the corresponding habit is the need to love so being of service to other people being kind and compassionate to other people and so on and you know uh, people listening to this really fast might think hey what's wrong with wanting to be you know the center of love i mean like you know uh, of course i can also see why it's nice to be nice to other people but um in order to be happy isn't it uh better to actually be the person who's given the love um now it turns out that somewhat maybe counterintuitively um being uh, a kind person or you know uh prioritizing other people's happiness by and large tends to increase your happiness levels okay so you got to kind of trust some of the findings here um uh, as i go along okay so this is going to be a short summary obviously um number 3 is uh seeking to control um outcomes and seeking to control other people uh, what i call seeking external control um over other people or outcomes uh, and that tends to reduce happiness levels and uh, instead if one way to seek what i call internal control so control over your own mind control over your own feelings um and we have the ability to do it because you know we can imagine things and what we imagine ends up um affecting our happiness levels uh so in in a way kind of gaining the ability to regulate your emotions so that even if life is not cooperating with you you have the ability to maintain a sense of equanimity right so that's uh, number 3 uh sorry number 4 now because i started with number 2 um and number 5 is uh trusting other people uh as opposed to distrusting them so trusting is the habit distrusting is the sin and uh we tend to be more cynical of other people than is um uh, appropriate in the sense that if you look at the actual levels of trustworthiness of people it tends to be higher than our perceived levels of trustworthiness of them how trustworthy we think they are um so this has been documented across a variety of studies i won't get into um and the it turns out that what matters to us in terms of our happiness is our perceived levels of trustworthiness of other people right uh, not their actual levels of trustworthiness but you know the quality of sleep that we get how happy we are uh, you know how um, chilled out we are when we are talking to other people that is affected more by our perceived levels of trustworthiness of them and so uh, if people in fact are more trustworthy than we give them credit all we need to do is 
up our perceptions. We wouldn't be delusional. We wouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, we wouldn't lack uh, kind of contact with reality, so to speak. Uh, we would be accurate, accurately calibrated. And so in other words, we are unnecessarily leaving a lot of happiness on the table uh, by being more cynical of other people than uh, we we ought to be uh, if, we, if we wanted to be uh, realistic in our perceptions. Um, so that's number um, two, three, four, five, right? And so number six is um, kind of a corresponding mirror image or parallel of distrusting life. That's a sin. And the, the habit would be trusting life. Um, and so what this boils down to is um, having this kind of uh, unshakable, eventually, I think, you know, it'd be best to kind of get to a point where it's unshakable, really, uh, faith that life is good and that everything is going to work out in, you know, one way or the other, uh, even if it takes longer and, and takes a more meandering path than you might have originally liked, um, that there is a re reason why things happen and it's a good reason. There's a meaning behind things. Uh, rather than distrusting life and feeling that life is malign and, you know, things go wrong at every turn and so on and so forth, right? So it's trusting life. Um, and the very last one, uh, the, the sin is uh, what I call mind addiction. So this tendency to uh, not be able to uh, stop thinking about uh, things, right? So, um, and underlying that mind addiction uh, sin is uh, a strong belief that many of us carry, which is that, uh, I think I can arrive at an even better solution to a challenge or a problem if I just think a little more about it, right? Uh, and the 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 habit is um, what is mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, of course, is and the, the ability to kind of you know focus on things uh, moment to moment without judgment. And uh, if you're able to do it, then you know it, it tamps down not only tamps down on mind addiction but also. Uh, gives you certain other advantages um, that we can talk about. Um, so let me now circle back to number one, um, which is uh, what I call the you know fundamental happiness uh, paradox uh, or the stupidest happiness mistake that we can make, which is the sin is that uh, we often sacrifice happiness uh, for the sake of the very things um, that we think will lead to happiness, right? Um, and so um, you know a good example of that might be that. Uh, you might want to win an argument with somebody else in order to you know prove you're right, but in the bargain, sacrifice not just your happiness, but the other person's happiness, let's say in a relationship, right? Um, which is uh, suboptimal because, I mean, eventually, uh, if you don't have that good relationship, then it doesn't matter if you're right or not. You know, that moment is gone and then they might leave you. You might even get divorced. Uh, so it might be a worse option for you. And so, um, the idea is to prioritize happiness, and that's the habit. Prioritize happiness. Uh, and I use the word prioritize, and I should be very careful to not use the word pursue happiness because it's very it's very different, even though it might seem like a very similar thing, and I'm splitting hairs here. But uh, the idea is to put in place a bunch of habits and activities and uh, things um, that exercises that enhance your chances of being happy without directly um, kind of monitoring and, and chasing happiness. So anyway, I mean, I know that you asked me for a short, Somebody, hopefully, that was uh, short enough. Uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you now. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. I think that was a super fast uh, summary, almost like a rapid fire round with me asking just one question and you <laughs> going at it. So thank you.
professor for doing that now um you know uh, since you you landed with the first uh, sin of uh, happiness which is not prioritizing happiness maybe uh, it'll it'll be nice to go a little deeper into that in the context of um, organizations uh, right so uh, because uh, most of us spend so much time working these days uh, uh, most of us a lot of us also do it remotely um we still find that uh, happiness and well-being and aspects related to those uh, you know those kinds of aspects are still not uh, fully prioritized or taken into account by leaders uh, by organizations and even employees down the line um why do you think that is and uh, you know an associated question there would be what can we do to prioritize happiness uh, in the organizational context so you know i think that on average you're probably right that most organizations don't really pay that much attention to happiness or well-being employee well-being and um they don't prioritize happiness but there are definitely examples of organizations that do right um so why don't organizations do it i think there's at least two reasons right one is that um organizations um want to uh, obviously be profitable and that is something that is in major focus right and most at least privately not privately but in the pub in the in the not in the government sector but in the uh, private sector um that's a huge priority and why is it a huge priority uh, well you know uh, if you don't make profits uh, or at least you don't break even then you don't even get to exist right so it's an important survival goal almost to to be profitable and the second thing is that um uh profits and money etc are quantifiable right and uh, you know there is this idea that when something is quantifiable um then uh, people seem to accord a greater priority or greater importance to it um uh, you know uh, it just makes it easier to measure where you are versus where you want to be and how much work you need to put in in order to get closer and so on it just makes the whole goal process progress sorry uh goal pursuit a little bit easier when it's quantifiable uh if you contrast that with happiness it's so subjective and like you know what do you even how do you even measure it and so on and so forth and so um given that profits are easier to measure people might prioritize it more and of course there's also this idea that you know uh, especially for uh, publicly traded organizations um there are uh, you know stock uh, there's a stock market and then there's like you know stockholders and various set of stakeholders that are very interested in uh, uh, you know enhancing their own quality of life through uh, uh, having a share of those profits right and so there's a lot of uh, different parties who are incentivized uh to promote uh a, a focus on the profitability of the firms um okay and that then detracts people from uh also focusing on happiness or um focusing more on happiness prioritizing happiness over profits um then there is the other part which is also an important part which is uh, what we talked about earlier on the functionality of happiness and the ROI of happiness despite the fact that there is quite a few studies showing that and quite a few organizations um that recognize it there i think a vast majority don't and they think that think of happiness as a as a almost luxury uh, that can come a little bit later and maybe uh even not under the purview of the organization and the leaders and that uh employees have to be responsible for their happiness on their own you know that's something that concerns their personal life not their professional life so to speak so i think it's a combination of those two things and then i would add a third thing too is that because this is an emerging field and it's not really well established it's not clear exactly what you would do in order to enhance the happiness of your employees or your own happiness you know people are not uh expert on this 
in this domain as they are say in for example brand management or calculating brand equity and things like that uh, people are much more conversant with how how to go about doing it but in in terms of enhancing happiness levels may not be as conversant and so the combination of all those factors leads people to i think deprioritize happiness in organizations got it and an associated question therefore is what where do they start where do organizations start if they mm. were to go down this path of uh, you know prioritizing it so what would mm. be your advice so i think that's very important that uh, people um recognize that happiness is, isn't just a feel good emotion um that it is also useful to be happy and this whole idea of functionality of happiness is i think super critical right and not just that people recognize it but people also uh, get their leaders to recognize it right uh, if they are somewhat lower down the organization and they recognize it because they are not as powerful or you know they do not have as many resources at their disposal they may not be able to do much about it you know they wouldn't be able to cause a set of ripple effects that are uh, as significant as would be the case if somebody higher up um, also recognized it and so it's very important for leaders um to uh to to realize this um so that's one thing and i think on the part of the people who are uh, purveyors of happiness so to speak like me or you know other um research organizations or consultants that want to promote happiness i think the onus definitely lies a lot on us to do a lot of this marketing job um and to also i think run studies um that monitor and measure happiness and look at different interventions uh, that you know promote happiness and document that and so in other words you know there needs to be a lot of research uh, that further kind of show shows evidence for this so that um you know there's a increasingly bigger body of knowledge that uh, all, all suggests over time that this is an important um thing to prioritize and not just from the standpoint of this the ethically correct thing to do either i don't think too many people would argue that wanting other people to be happy is the ethically right thing to do rather than wanting other people to be unhappy um but it's also the um kind of more uh uh you know in in terms of profits the appropriate thing to do so i think the combination of those things is what is required yeah and i think what i love about your work and others who study the field is that it's it's backed by so much uh, data um right which mm-hmm. which shows mm-hmm. all kinds mm-hmm. of correlations and causations in the way that you've been uh, talking about so far so the the business case quote unquote is 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 really strong right and like yeah. you said i think we it's it's probably uh, it's, it's important to put it out there a lot more so more people come into the fold and and take this seriously i suppose Mhm 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 absolutely yep um so the second or the other sin that i want to talk about professor is uh, this whole idea of control right and since you've called it out as as one of the deadly sins of happiness uh, which is being overtly controlling um, right so again uh, we live in an era where uh, you know we have we've come out of covid it's been a couple of years um and there is talk about you know uh, leaders and employers asking people to come back to the office despite the fact that we've seen people have been fairly you know productive and if if not more productive than they were while they were at office working mm-hmm. you know in a face to face kind of a uh, kind of an environment part of that is probably has to do with control is that managers want to see how people work and you know work closely with them uh, you know uh, establish a degree of control um, right so if if i were to ask you again in an organizational context to reflect on that particular sin which is being overtly controlling um, right especially managers leaders and what can they do instead what's the harm in being overtly controlling and what should they be doing instead mm. yeah so the harm in being uh, overly control seeking is that 
other people don't like to be controlled. Okay. Uh, and so if you're a leader, for example, and you have a team of people uh, who are reporting to you and you start to micromanage them, right? You give them a task and then you kind of follow up immediately and then look over their shoulders as they're doing their task and, you know, uh, keep asking for updates or telling them how to accomplish the job, right? Uh, they may have their own ways of accomplishing their jobs and that they're more comfortable doing and they feel confident doing it. Um, so there are many situations in which the, uh, you know, this this uh, phenomenon of micromanagement happens, right? Uh, and that is an example of being overly control-seeking, okay? What happens when somebody feels uh, controlled by other people is that uh, they don't like it and, and that you know, feeling uh, of not liking it is uh, is often referred to as a psychological reactance. So you feel a sense of psychological reactance. And, you know, we are all familiar with psychological reactance. Uh, whenever it is that somebody else tries to control us, we try to kind of revolt against it in one way or the other. It could be a somewhat passive aggressive way of revolting against it. If you're not powerful enough, then that's the only option you have. Or it could actually be more more aggressive and, you know, say, that no, I don't want to do it. You know, I, I want to do it my way. Uh, otherwise, choose somebody else and so on. Right. Um, so. I'm sure that we have experienced it with our kids, you know, two-year-olds, you know, will like want to have it their way and we try to control them. They throw a big tantrum. Teenagers are very famous around the world for being uh, high on psychological reactants when other people uh, try to control them, et cetera. And the same phenomenon plays out um, maybe in a more muted fashion among adults, but it nevertheless play, plays out. And so you're reducing the levels of happiness of other people as you become overly control-seeking. That's one, one problem, right? You don't want to have un unhappy employees who don't really respect you. They're kind of rolling their eyes behind your back as you're like, you know, trying to seek control over them. Um, and the other part uh, why it's not good to be overly control-seeking has to do with the quality of decisions that get made, right? So uh, here I want to talk a little bit about uh, work on something called psychological safety and, and what's called voice um, in organizations. And so if employees feel that they don't have psychological safety and a voice in the organization, because, you know, other people are very control-seeking. They do not give them the freedom to, you know, have the safety and the voice. So let me talk a little bit about what these concepts are. Psychological safety is when you feel that even if my opinions and my um, thoughts on a particular issue are different from that of my leaders and other people on the team, I feel a sense of safety that I can voice my true opinions, right? I don't have to pull my opinions and, and rein them in or, you know, uh, act as if, my opinions are aligned with that of the other people when in fact they're different, right? Um, so and that's what psychological safety is, right? And voice also has a second com component uh, component to it, which might be called psychological effectiveness. Uh, so that's, that has to do with once you do voice your true opinion, which you would do if you had more psychological safety than if you didn't, then you also feel that that opinion matters and that that opinion is taken into account and um, decisions are made based off of that opinion. Um, and in other words, uh, you know, you could have a lot of psychological safety, but, um, you know, you add your opinion, nobody does anything about it. You don't have the sense of psychological effectiveness, right? So you need the combination of both and both together might be called voice. So you do have voice in the organization. That is that when you do strongly feel about something that you can add that opinion without feeling that you're going to be penalized, you're going to be denied promotion, or you're not going to get a bonus, or you're going to be spurned uh, in some way or the other. Plus, do you also feel that people then incorporate that opinion into making the decisions, right? Where in Obviously, in context in which it seems like it's a valid opinion, right? It's one thing if, you know, after a discussion, it's clear that that wasn't necessarily the right um, opinion. So 
if you feel controlled, that is that you don't have the freedom to express yourself, then you can see how uh, in a team that you know uh, does not have psychological safety or does not have voice, the quality of decisions that the team makes is going to be poorer because it is not incorporated diversity of opinions. It's not considered all points of view. Uh, it's not considered some of the things that might actually be very valid, that is very relevant to the decision, but because there wasn't enough psychological safety, people didn't air them, right? So it becomes very much a case that whoever is ruling the roost, you know, the leader of the team or, or the company, you know, has it their way, right? And that's not going to be good for the decision. So in terms of happiness of people, in terms of the quality of decisions, when there is not enough, um, you know, uh, when, when the, when the uh, leaders or the organization is overly control seeking, both of those are going, are going to suffer. Um, so that's a big reason why it's very, very important to give people a sense of control. So choose voice over control. I think that's the message. That's the message yeah, that you're giving. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you could just say that, you know, forget about control altogether, you know, just make sure that you give people voice. I think that's super important. Make sure that you're not micromanaging. And here I have to be careful that, you know, some people actually need a lot of mentorship and direction and, you know, be told how to do things, especially in the early days of uh, being part of the organization. And so there, you know, you might, in fact, want to be somewhat more, quote unquote, micromanaging in the sense that, you know, you kind of like have to listen to what it is that the people that you're trying to lead and direct uh, want out of you. Um, but by and large, people like clarity on goals, what to achieve, but not so much a directive on how to achieve these goals, you know? So how you go about achieving it, whether you work in the day or in the morning or at home or, you know, in a coffee shop or in the office, uh, the team with which you choose to work, et cetera. I think people want um, quite a bit of freedom and, you know, um, uh, this thing, uh, authority to do it the way that they want, but they do want a lot of clarity on what it is that has to be achieved. Excellent. Thank you uh, for that. Um, I'm going to uh, shift uh, tangent again, Professor. Thanks for yeah, those sure. insights, um, which is uh, moving on to uh, a concept that you beautifully explain in the book. And it's kind of been imprinted on my mind for the last many years now, which is uh, something that you use uh, called the dispassionate pursuit of passion. Um, right. So tell us, uh, it, it so sounds paradoxical when I when I say it out loud, but can you explain what that concept is and why why we should be thinking about it, maybe in the context of careers, for example? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it, it's a very powerful technique. And in fact, I would say that it's probably the most powerful habit that you can acquire. And earlier, when I summarized the seven sins and habits, I talked about something called trusting life, right? Um, kind of, I mentioned that in parallel to how you, it's important to trust other people, it's important to trust life, that everything happens for a reason, and so on and so forth. This um, topic of dispassionate pursuit of passion is very much aligned with that idea of trusting life. So, I think that the best way to kind of explain the concept is to um, think about uh, what kind of um, uh, uh, categories uh, to which you can bucket people, uh, depending based on based off of their um, their uh, the way in which they approach uh, their goals, okay, or their passions. So there is the first category, which I think most of us, most of you, your listeners will be very familiar with, which is what I call the obsessive pursuit of passion or obsessive pursuers of passion. And these are people who have strong goals, they have strong desires, strong likes, strong dislikes, and um, they go about wanting to achieve the things that they want and, you know, go closer to what they like and away from what they dislike and so on. And they put a lot of energy into the pursuit of their goals. 
Uh, and when they achieve a goal, then they become ecstatic, right? You know, I got my job, or I got, I'm getting married to this person that I wanted to get married to and so on. And when things don't go their way, then they're miserable and they despair and they're like down in the dumps, right? Um, so this is a very uh, well-known template, right? And for many of the listeners, they might even be wondering, you know, how what other ways there to look at life, right? Um, then there's the opposite end of the spectrum in a sense, which I call the indifferent pursuers of passion who really don't have a lot of, you know, likes and dislikes, and they don't have strong goals, you know, strong aspirations or anything like that. And they just kind of like drift about in their life, right? Um, and you might arrive at an indifferent pursuit of passion kind of an ideology or become one of those kind of people if you've been beaten about a lot by life, right? You had goals as a youngster and you wanted to pursue them and then you got beaten about, you didn't achieve a lot of the goals, you felt bad, you know, failures happened. And then you arrive at a point where you say, you know what, I'm just going to check out, right? I'm not even going to have any big goals because I know that I'm setting myself up for failures by doing it, right? So the um, happy medium, and this is a very difficult thing to achieve, but it can be achieved. I can tell you that this can definitely make progress toward this and become more of this type of person. And I call this type of person a dispassionate pursuit of passion. And these people have very strong likes and dislikes, okay? Maybe not quite as strong as the obsessive pursuit of passion, but very strong likes and dislikes, have aspirations, have goals, okay? They, they know what they like, what they don't like. Um, and they're equally energetic in terms of like wanting to achieve the things that they want to achieve. But when they uh, do not achieve what it is that they set out to achieve, um, they don't suffer from misery, okay? And why is that? Or how is that that they manage to pull that off? They manage to pull that off because they recognize that Every moment of failure, so-called failure, you know, the thing that your mind is categorizing as failure is actually a thing that opens new doors of opportunities, okay? And I'm not saying this in a wishful thinking way or, oh, you know, spiritual way. If you actually literally look back to your own failures in your past, right? Um, and what we find in our research is that these failures, you know, these negative moments need to have happened relatively um, distant in, in your distant past. You know, if it just happened recently, last week, you know, you got fired, you won't be able to adopt this perspective. But let's say that you got fired two years ago or more, right? And some of us obviously have been through that, you know, maybe during COVID it happened. And now when you look back on that very event, there's a high chance that you learned a lot from it. And your life now um, is actually better because that happened rather than worse because that happened. Why is that, right? Uh, when you kind of like look back, then what you discover is that the uh, things that we consider failures at the time that they happened have a way of enriching our life, um, making us recognize who our true friends are, for example, or making us recognize what our most deeply held values are. It, it kind of like makes us more self-aware about who we are and what is important to us. Uh, it more kind of, you know, uh, more practically, in a more practically relevant way, it might open doors of opportunities that lead us to find that one job that, you know, is, is closer to our calling, for example, right? Or move to a place which is more meaningful for us and so on. And so, I won't kind of like get into a lot of the details, but there's a huge amount of literature on um, so-called post-traumatic growth, post-traumatic growth. Um, and these are for traumatic events, like witnessing death in a war and, and so on, or like you know, losing a parent as a young kid and so on. Um, so even for those really extreme, intensely negative events, it turns out that um, the, these per a huge amount of growth, right? Hence post-traumatic growth. And what does growth mean? It means that you become a better person, more skilled person or more compassionate person, or you become the type of person who's happier because you can 
kind of enjoy the ordinary moments in your life rather than wait for only the extraordinary moments in your life. Uh, you become a more spiritual person. You become a person who's more embracing of and accepting of reality as it is rather than wanting to change it and so on. So that's those are characteristic of uh, post-traumatic growth. And what we find is that even for non-traumatic, but nevertheless somewhat serious events, um, there is this growth that is spurred by those events, right? Um, and so coming back to this dispassionate or pursuit of passion, so once you recognize that these negative events, these so-called negative events are truly not really that negative, right? Uh, providing a sufficient amount of water is flown under the bridge, you actually recognize them as being, in fact, more meaningful than even most of the positive events in your life. Then um, you can see how you can adopt this perspective of, okay, I have this goal, I want to achieve it, I'm going to put my all into it, right? And in the moment of truth, I did not achieve it, right? Then you can kind of lean on this knowledge that findings have shown, and introspection of your past, uh, you know, events will show you um, that uh, this might be very much the uh, you know uh, new beginning, right? That is going to make your life even more meaningful, even better, and so that then can that can then make you kind of have like you know have this ability to set goals and have likes and dislikes before an outcome is revealed to you, and yet not be attached to the outcomes after the outcomes have occurred, okay? Especially when the outcomes are negative uh, and then kind of like be resilient and roll over and, you know, pick yourself up again and get back on the saddle, right, uh, of life. Um, of course, you know, then the question is, what do you do when positive things happen? Do you not rejoice? Because, you know, that could be the beginning of a new set of bad things that happen. Uh, sure, it could. But, you know, as far as we can tell, uh, it, it's something that we desired and it's a universe has been graceful enough and generous enough to give it to us, be it a job or be it a promotion, whatever, right, we want it in our life. And so I think the appropriate response there is uh, to be grateful and, you know, um, like thank the universe or thank God if you believe in a God or thank other people who help you achieve that goal. And I think that way you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You know, I'm kind of like going pretty fast in the logic here, but basic point is that, when good things happen, rejoice, be grateful, don't be proud. I think that, or at least even if you're proud, don't spend too much time on pride because that tends to um, be a non-sustainable kind of a positive emotion. Uh, and I can get into some of the reasons for it. So being grateful is much better as an option if you you know think about it. Um, and when bad things happen, as uh, Benjamin Zander said in his book, The Art of Possibility, you say, how fascinating, right? How fascinating that I failed despite putting in all this effort um, could there be new doors of opportunity that open up? And just that slight difference in perspective, what we are finding in our studies is that um, makes a world of a difference. All of a sudden, you're no longer kind of eyes down, you know, um, kind of marinating and uh, feeling bad and wallowing in self-pity. Your eyes up and looking for new doors of opportunity that would not have opened up had that failed, quote unquote, negative event not happened. And that makes a world of a difference in terms of how resilient you are, how successful you are in the future and so on. I hope that kind of explains it. Yeah, it does. Thanks. Thanks for uh, taking us through that roller coaster of an explanation of what it is, Professor. Thank you. In fact, a lot of thoughts came to my mind as I was listening to you. One point being, I remember from the course about, um, you know, uh, writing a, a letter of being grateful to uh, people, expressing thanks to uh, through writing a letter. I, I remember doing that uh, with my editor after I wrote my after my book got published and uh, like you said the, the feeling it's not exhilaration but it's it's kind of uh, you know um, uh, feeling of calm feeling grateful thankful mm -hmm. and also joy and happiness as a result of doing that mm -hmm. I think the more we do that uh, through you know through different ways 
writing a letter is just one example that you've you've quoted i think that will be that will be great to to take as a as a takeaway and yeah the other point that came to mind as you were speaking professor is the fact that post traumatic growth in an organizational setup right so we have performance cycles for example where you know not everybody gets the highest rating all the time but then looking back what can i learn through the last quarter half year one year that i can yeah. you know take back into the next cycle and not wallow in self pity saying hey i'm not good enough and yeah. beat myself down yeah so i was just thinking those things as as you were explaining thank you for that i just want to pick on one last thing um before we wind up here which is th- that of trust uh, and i know you you kind of mentioned it while we spoke about the seven um, deadly sins um so from your years of research uh, also you know outside of uh, generally you know there is so much employee engagement research for example which which for the last many years that gallup has been publishing where it doesn't seem to go up it's it's quite stagnant across mm-hmm. uh, all of these years and by extension i would believe trust is also kind of stagnant in in an organizational setup and what mm-hmm. you adhere to is the fact that it's it's um, you know it's better to be more trusting of people than less trusting of people um, right mm-hmm. so there is there is again a kind of a paradox there in the way that it's probably playing out in an organizational setup if i were to ask you to reflect on that a little bit you know how could you apply the concept of smart trust uh, that you speak about in your mm-hmm. work also mm-hmm. uh, in an organizational setup what would you say to that yeah so first let me talk a little bit about smart trust uh, so um the sin that we often uh, commit in in the context of social relationships you know be it you know in organizations or or personal life uh, is that we are by default more distrusting than we ought to be okay we tend to be more cynical of others i already talked a little bit about it and so you might think that the habit or the thing that promotes happiness then is to be default uh trust right i mean it is to be default by default trusting of other people uh, and so i don't think that that's um necessarily the best approach i think you know the best approach is uh, to be more smart in uh, how much you trust and who you trust and when you trust and and so on uh, rather than trusting everybody indiscriminately all the time and that's why i call it smart trust and uh, a big part of the smart trust is also um Uh, uh having a bunch of strategies under your belt for when you do get cheated or when somebody violates your sense of trust that you placed in them how do you kind of cope with that uh emotionally so that um you don't become the you know go back into your shell of being distrusting right uh of other people um so uh what are the elements of smart trust okay so one of the elements of smart trust is to recognize this the finding that i've already mentioned earlier which is that people are more trusting than we give them credit okay so what does it mean in an organizational context it might mean that as a boss that you know by default you tend to kind of believe that um the people working for you are capable people are intelligent people are responsible people are accountable people so uh you know they're quote unquote innocent until proven guilty you know that's the approach rather than you know show me first that you're innocent or so show, show me first you're capable and then i'll start to kind of like you know uh, uh, not micromanage you mi- micromanage you uh, so there's that element of that um and the second element of it is uh, you know when you trust other people um you tend to kind of actually elicit more trustworthy behavior from them okay so it's not as if people are kind of set in how much how trustworthy they are they have a range in which they can move and when you start trusting people they become more trustworthy um you know as a result and the reason why it happens is because of the release of a hormone called oxytocin i'm sure that you're familiar with it you know it's released by you know when when um mothers are you know um feeding their babies 
I mean, there's a lot of love in a romantic relationship as well. Uh, and it's the very same hormone that gets released when you trust other people. And so, for example, if I were to come to you, uh, Subhu, and you're about to give a big pitch to an organization, and I know that you're going to do that, and I tell you that, hey, I have this deck of slides that I've created that worked really fantastically the last time I gave a pitch. It was very successful. Uh, I'm just going to give it to you. You know, take a look at it. No, no pressure. You don't want to use it. Don't use it. But here it is, right? Or if you come and ask me, hey, Raj, you know, you, you made this pitch and it was successful. Can I have that take of slides? And I just like give it to you, right? Um, rather than, you know, holding it back or feeling like, you know, this is a competition between you and me. And, you know, if you manage to succeed, then you might get promoted over me, etc. So I kind of don't look at it that way. And I look at it from the perspective of, okay, you know, I just do the trusting thing that you're going to do the what's right, right? Uh, you're A, uh, you know, even if you're, you're successful, you're going to give some credit to me, for example, or, you know, say when you're presenting that, you know, this is a set of slides that I borrowed from Raj or, or whatever. So, um, there is a uh, release of oxytocin that happens um, when uh, somebody's um, uh, you know behaving in a manner that shows that they really trust that other person, right? And so they become more trustworthy. Um, and uh, so the idea here is that uh, you don't trust other people all the time, every time indiscriminately, but you do small things in order to elicit more trustworthy behavior from them. And so, for example, if you come to me for the slides and I don't feel as as comfortable sharing these slides with you, then, um, you know, I might do something that's a little more um, or a little less um, extreme, you know, so sharing the slides with you might be like uh, scary for me because, you know, who knows what you might do with it. But what I might start out with is a more uh, acceptable level of uh, you know, sharing something with you, you know, so I might say, I might just give you a broad overview of what I did. Here's the structure of the presentation that I went through. Maybe you want to do this. Okay. And then I wait for you to see uh, how you kind of behave. And if you, in fact, are thankful and in the presentation, I later hear that you actually acknowledged me, et cetera, then I know that you're a trustworthy person. And so I call this small wins strategy. And so trusting other people in little bits and pieces rather than wholesale um, so that over time you gain this uh, trust <laughs> in how much other people can be trusted. Okay. Um, anyway, so I hope that that was kind of helpful, but these are a bunch of small things that leaders can do, organizations can do in order to inculcate a higher level of trust within or interpersonal trust within organizations. That's great. Definitely helpful. Thank you, Professor. And uh, with that, I think we are through uh, with our time also that we had together. So thank you so much, uh, Professor, for being here and spending your time with us. It's been great listening to you. Absolutely, Subhu. Thank you very much. I uh, really, really, really enjoyed it. Professor Raj's fundamental argument about not chasing but prioritizing happiness, just as much as you'd prioritize other things in life, like a career or health, made a deep impact on me many years ago when I enrolled for his Coursera course, A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. There are so many great takeaways from this conversation for me. Happiness is not just a feel-good medicine, but has real functional advantages for all of us and our organizations, namely, happier people tend to be more productive. The difference between affective and reflective happiness, psychological reactance versus psychological safety, the importance of giving employees a voice and not being overtly control-seeking, how the dispassionate pursuit of passion helps one carry their successes lightly and recover from failures, the idea of post-traumatic growth, and the application of smart trust. Until next time, I hope this episode helps you play an active role in shaping a happy, productive culture for your colleagues at your workplace.